If you have your Bible this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to Act, or excuse me, Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six. We'll be reading the first fourteen verses. We'll also look at this morning Matthew chapter one. Verses 18 through 26. So we're going to start in Romans 6 and read 1 through 14. Then we'll flip to Matthew 1, 18 through 26. I struggled with the text for this morning. Being used to preaching week to week to week to week. Being thrown in here and there and everywhere. Sometimes it's difficult to know which way to go. Have you ever read a book or bought a book and been excited to read that book and you read, you skim or peruse the introduction, you read the first and the second chapter and you begin to think, oh, I wasted my money. Ah, this book is dragging. I don't understand where it's going. I wish I didn't buy the book. But I bought the book, I should keep reading it. But you're struggling to read the book, and you don't know if you should read it or not. And finally, you get somewhat frustrated, and you skip to the end of the book. And you read the last couple chapters. And then all of a sudden, you're excited to read the book. The book makes sense all of a sudden. What, was, what you read in chapters 1 and 2 seemed to be more important and significant now that you've, you know the end of the story. The Christmas story in the Bible is one of those stories in which we should probably look at it from the back, if you will, to the front. When the church gathers at Christmas time, it's often overshadowed by the blanket of the secular world, isn't it? What's going on outside? Santa Claus is coming to town. Frosty's melted and come back to life and all those things. And it's kind of overshadowed. Or a better way to say it might be, Jesus shares the spotlight with a little round guy in a red suit. <laughs> But for us who are believers, we know the end of the story, don't we? And that should encourage us to dig deeper into the beginning of the story. And the Bible is set up in such a way that when we read, let me put it this way. We should read the Gospels in light of the book of Acts. And we should read the book of Acts in light of the epistles. You see, for in the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. And we read in Acts, and what we see are those who had been the followers of Jesus, who had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. They are now proclaiming this Jesus. Peter even declares in Acts chapter 4, there's salvation in no one, no one else but Christ. And then when we turn to the letters or the epistles, 
we have the explanation of what has been unfolding throughout. The epistles tell us what has happened, what it means, and why it matters. So when we come to the Christmas story, we should read it from the epistles through the book of Acts into the Gospels that we might truly understand the meaning and hope of what we call the Christmas season. So what I want to do this morning is just that. I want us to look, and you'll find my text strange. I hope you do. I did. I struggled with them. I'm like, really, Lord? But I think it'll make sense if you stay with me. As we look at the epistles, travel back through Acts, and enter into the gospel narratives, that we might truly see what has happened, what it means, and why it matters. Amen? Is that not the reason we gather each and every week? I don't know about you, but the excitement of my home right now is high. It looks like Christmas threw up in our living room. And we love Christmas, and we bake, and we eat, and we do all those things that you shouldn't do, and and we're into it, and we enjoy it. I don't want to be a wet blanket about Christmas. I'm not being that by any means. I'm not even a wet blanket about Santa Claus. In and of itself, it's harmless, I believe, as long as we understand truly what it is, right? A A child's fantasy. But at the same token, for us who have grown in the faith, we must be centralized and stand firm in the world that wants to distort Christmas with the truth of God's word. I'm not going to tell you anything profound this morning, I don't think. I'm not going to tell you anything new. But we're not going to talk about a baby in a manger and Joseph and Mary and all those normal things. We're going to talk about why He came and why it matters. Because at the heart of Christmas, that is the most significant thing. The crux of Christmas is the hope of Christ. Let me say that again. The crux of Christmas is the hope of Jesus Christ. And we as believers should continually ask ourselves, why does that matter? And how does that impact my daily life? Does it have an impact on how I live my life each and every day? So let's begin by looking at God's word. We'll begin in Romans 6. And as I said, we'll end in Matthew 1, 18, 26. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. What I'm reading to you is the very word of God. It would serve us well. To pay it careful attention. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in death, a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a, in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God bless the reading to his words, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive the truth that is ours by the grace of God. Amen. There are two essential truths this morning that I want to share to you that I believe are the crux of Christmas, the hope of Christmas, the reason for the incarnation of Christ, the reason why God himself and his mercy and his grace purposed to enter time and space, to become that which he himself created and walked among us. Two things, two reasons, two hopes that tell the Christmas story. 
that often are not shared. The first is found in Matthew chapter 1, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and verse 19. If I can find it. No, excuse me. You know, I did that in my ordination exam. They asked me for that verse, and I always have always said that it comes from Matthew 19, but it does not. Begin in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Verse 21 holds a little caveat within itself that people, people often look that is very central to our Christian faith. It's found there in verse 21 and it's the crux or reason or purpose or fundamental uh, reason for the coming of Christ Jesus. Look at it closely with me. What do we read? She'll bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, and he will make salvation possible for the world. And he will come to make salvation available to anyone who on their own accord will repent and believe in his name. That he will come and die for Everyone, even those who will reject him ultimately and spend eternity in hell. That's not what that text says at all. That text is very definitive and it defines for whom Christ has died. Christ, we are told by the angel, as it comes to Joseph in a dream, has come for a very specific purpose and that is to actually accomplish salvation for his people. Are you following me? Newsflash, and people hate this doctrine. Christ did not die for everyone. Christ did not come to make salvation a mere possibility dependent upon your mood, your feelings. Christ came, hear me, to accomplish salvation. Amen. We should pray, have communion, leave. That is life-changing truth. The world rejects it. We, as Reformed, you know there's a huge difference in today's world between evangelicals and Reformed people, right? You know that, don't you? 43% of those who are classified as evangelicals deny the incarnation of Christ. Christ isn't God. 43%. How are you an evangelical and deny? But like many things in the church and the world in which we live, our definition of things have lapsed, right? Have fallen short. The truth of Christmas is this. Christ came to do what he promised he would do. And that's save a people. Not make salvation possible for you. 
to actually do everything required to save you. Ephesians 1. And many others. Check it when you go home. I'm not going to labor in the, do in the doctrine of election or predestination or anything. The sovereignty of God is really what we're arguing here. Who's sovereign, you or God? <laughs> it's not about. I studied under Dr. Sproul, and I know that seems as a surprise, even to the way I'm dressed. But he used to always say, and I was always moved by this, look, it's not a wonder anybody goes to hell. We all should be in hell. The wonder of Christmas is that anyone goes to heaven because we all deserve to go to hell. And we forget these truths that are life transforming. That Christ didn't come to make our salvation possible. He came to actually save us. To redeem us from the pit of hell as worthless as we are. That's the beauty of Christmas. And it's said right here in the Christmas narrative. Christ came to save a people. The question is, have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith in this, not of yourself. That too is a gift of God. At least you might boast in yourself and say, look, I'm smart enough to believe in Jesus. Because you're not. Haven't met a man smart enough to believe in Jesus on his own. Met a man, man in the spirit who wasn't smart enough to screw a light bulb in and find Jesus. Amen. Jesus came to save you. And he did everything necessary for your salvation. The question is, do you know that? And by that, I don't mean, well, yeah, we said the Apostles' Creed, man. This is Roebuck. Do you know that in a biblical sense? Is that something personal, something intimate, something you really know? Even in January, when you break your New Year's resolution to lose 27 pounds I'm just telling you, in the new year, there's going to be a new me. I'm going to drop so much weight, I'm going to, come on. Really? And then you feel bad about yourself because January, the end of January comes and you had to buy new pants after you got pants at Christmas because your new ones don't fit anymore. And you're feeling lousy about yourself, Right? Yeah, I'm just a fat guy. That's all I'm ever going to be. I'm a loser. Christians walk around as if they're losers because they don't understand what's already theirs. We have to get that land. We walk around with our head in the sand, buried, acting all depressed, and as failures because we don't realize what Christ has already done for us, regardless of that. Better yet, in spite of that, you following me? He came to save his people. He didn't make your salvation possible, a possibility, depending on how much weight you're going to lose in the new year, how good you're going to be, 
He did it in spite of all that. He did it because he knows you're not good. You're not good enough. That's the reason for the table. Okay, let's move on. I can do Christmas things all day long because you know what? The Bible actually speaks into our lives and so does your catechism. So I would employ you this New Year's if you're going to set, prom- make any promise, promise and work towards it make, it, make it a priority in your life. Spend time in the Bible and actually take the Bible and apply it to your life. Don't apply it to this thing over here. Right? Apply it to your work, your family, your business, your relationships. Your broken relationship. Take it and apply it. That's why we were given the word of God. Okay. Jesus died, or Jesus came to actually save you. Believe it. It's life changing. Romans 6. And you're not going to be here all day. Don't worry about it. You'll get home and do all your Christmas Eve things. But Romans 6. The second truth that I want to give you this Christmas. These are my Christmas gifts to Roebuck Presbyterian Church. Walk out of here today and know that Jesus actually saved you. Not that he made it possible for you to earn your salvation, but he did it. Over. Final. Second thing is this. We see it here in Romans chapter 2. Two nuggets in scripture that just tear me apart that I've read over and over again in life. That passage in Matthew and this one here. Look at verse, let's begin in verse 1. We'll read it again for sake of argument. What shall we say then? We know what's happening here. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? They, they were trying to cheapen grace, the, the doctrine of grace, right? Well, look, if grace comes because I'm so sinful, blah, 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 should I keep on sinning? Is this a license to sin that the world might see the grace of Jesus? And Paul says, I wonder how many times he was actually asked this question throughout his ministry. He had to be asked it a, a ton of times. Should we keep on sinning that people might see God's grace, right? Looking for an excuse to sin. True. Looking for an excuse for their behavior. And Paul answers it as he says. I mean, he asks the question, and then he answers it. By no means, certainly not. Actually, in the Greek, it says, what are you, stupid? That's what it says. By no means. Don't just, don't just run over that as if, oh, by, Paul, by no means. I, I think Paul said, by no means. Are you for real? Why would you consider such a thing? And look what he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it. You know, chapter 6 is the first chapter in the epistle of Romans in which Paul starts to work with the idea of how then should we now live? Right? You following me? How should I conduct myself as a Christian? How can I live a holy and righteous life? How can I do these things that we've talked about? How can I be what Christ has come to make me? And we get bogged down in that, don't we? If you were paying attention to me and you have paid attention thus far, I just asked all the wrong questions of the text. 
Did I not? I just asked all the wrong questions of this test. Let me see if anybody's paying attention. You're getting a new pastor's tune. Some of you are happy. You won't have to worry about me coming back. That's okay. <laughs> but let me see if you're paying attention. What pronoun was I using in those questions I was asking of this text? I. I. We come to the scriptures with the wrong pronouns. What? How? I, right? It's about who? Me. Instead of attacking God's word from the perspective we should attack it from, and that's from him. Listen, that was the price of, the, of your tithe today. Believe it. We come from the scriptures from us to him. We should ask of the text, what does that mean about who? Not me, but who? God. But we don't, do we? How can I live a righteous life? How can I be a better Christian? How can I, instead of saying and looking at the truth that's presented, look at it, go back to it. I'm sorry, I, I get wound, I got my Feliz Navidad socks on, I get all wound up. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No means. How can we who died to sin still live? Do, are you catching that? How are we who what? Died to sin. How can we still live in it? Do you not know, it says, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We died to sin. It's not we will die. We are dying. We one day will die. What does it say, people? We died to sin. Now notice something. Keep reading the text and you find it on your own. Who else died to sin in this text? Who else died to sin in this text? I'm half Baptist. You're going to have to play with me. I'll stand here all day. Reformed Baptist. But anyway, who also died to sin? Hey, Jesus died. Look at the text. What text are you in? Help your brothers out. What verse are you in? Oh, you didn't even know. You just knew that. Good for you. Merry Christmas. Had a girl. I'm not moving until you find it. Look for it. Ah, I told you. Mark's coming. I'm not scared. What? Verse 3. Is that what it is, huh? Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? True. Jesus died to sin. The whole text is about that truth, is it not? 
Over and over again, the apostle establishes that truth. That we died to sin, therefore how can we live in it any longer? You can't. What? I sin all the time. Yes, but you died to it. Just as Christ died to sin. Look at it with me. It's important for us to understand, really, that the first section of this letter, Paul's taking up the issue of the Christian life. This isn't about your justification. This is about your sanctification. You get the difference, right? This is about living a holy life. This isn't about your justification. That's not what is at stake in Romans 6. Living the holy life, living the Christian life is what's at stake. And what Paul's telling us here simply is this, is that Christ, the one who came to save a people, died to sin, and you too are dead to it. Think about that truth. I know how it plays out. Definitive sanctification, progressive sanctification. But what does the what does the text say, bud? What does it say? It says, We died to sin, Christ died to sin. It does not say that Christ died for sin, it says to sin. How did Christ die to sin? Well, he you know what? Christ came, he lived the perfect life of obedience for people like you and me who can't do it. He hung on the tree and paid for our sin. And then when he rose from the dead, he ascended into the heaven. And you know what? He has nothing to do with that anymore. That's over. That is over. It's over. He's not coming back to die for it again. He doesn't have to. It's done. He's done with it. Listen, that's exciting, joyful Christmas stuff. And what he's telling you is this in this passage. In him, you died to it too. The hope of Christmas. That even though I continue in this outward shell that struggles against its own flesh, against the world in which hates God, against the devil itself, I'm already dead to sin. Boy, how kind, what kind of impact can that have on your daily living for Christ Jesus? To know that you've already died to it. That you're dead to it. That one day, one day soon, Lord willing, it won't even matter. It's over. To never return again. And you see, we talk about people growing in grace and holiness all the time, don't we? We stand up here in our blue sport coats or black and our pants and our red ties. You know, we're in the uniform and we say, employ the means of grace. You want to live a holy life? Employ the means of grace. The preaching of the word, the sacraments, prayer, and fellowship. And everybody walks out and goes, well, okay, I go to church. I participate in communion. I'm there for the preaching of the word, et cetera, et cetera. And... Their life never changes. True? It doesn't change. And next Sunday we come back and we say, well, well I'm appointing the means of grace, Pastor. Here's why. Because we don't take what we've been given and actually apply it to our life. To know that I'm already dead to sin changes the motivation in my heart drastically. 
And what needs changed more than anything? My behavior? Some of you think it does in the pulpit. But my behavior? Yes or no? My heart needs changed. And to know that I'm already dead to that, to believe that, to know that Christ came to save a people, and I'm one of those people, and I'm dead to sin. Oh, the motivation now isn't that I might earn his favor, that I might deserve his love. No, 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 no. He loves me so much. This is so. Amen. And now when I fall off the tree, when I go awry, how quick do I repent? Whoa, 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 I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that behavior. I'm dead to that. I died to that. What am I doing? Right? You see the difference? That's all I'm going to give you. Figure it out. By God's grace, this is life-changing. This is Christmas. This is the crux of Christmas. This is the gift of Christmas. You're saved, and you're dead to sin. Merry Christmas. In Christ Jesus, it's true. Our union with Christ gives us this. And we walk around as if this isn't true. Here's the problem. We don't believe what we hear. You see, quit, chain, quit crying and, and, and praying that your behavior changes. Start crying out to the Lord daily that your heart would change. And that you would hear. And not only that what you would hear, but you would know. There's knowing and there's knowing, right? I know how to hit a baseball. It doesn't get me in the major leagues. Christ came to do everything necessary for your sin. He saved a people. If you are united to Christ in both his death and resurrection, you are saved. Not only that, Our Father and our God, we pray for the Spirit to be upon us. Father, there was so much. I thank you that my mind's exploding, my heart's full. And I do heavily rely on you to make sense out of all of it. We could go on forever. There's so much here, and they're just little nuggets, little phrases in Scripture that change our whole view of everything that can have an impact on our lives daily, a real impact. I love how you work with us, not as robots, but as image bearers. And how you grow us. And Father, as this church closes out one season and enters a new, I pray that she would grow. And that she would be blessed and celebrate Christmas every day. And focus not on the wise men, and their gifts, but on the gifts of the coming of Christ. 
For when our attention is there, our lives change. And we can't do it without you. So we humbly ask that you would indeed do it in us. And we'll cling to the promise that you who have begun a good work in me will finish it one day. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. If you would, take your hymnal now and turn with me to 210, Silent Night, Holy Night. We're going to sing verse 1 and 2 as the session comes and uncovers the table. Your elders hold the keys to this table. It's under their ordained leadership of the church that we partake of it together. They hold the keys to the table. For theirs is a weighty office. I hope that you pray for your leadership, your elders, your deacons, and everyone continuously. We all need prayer. Silent night, holy night, please stand one and two as we prepare our hearts for the table.